2: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books in Biography podcast, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, John Najarian, and today we'll be speaking with Celia Starr about her new book, Frida in America, The Creative Awakening of a Great Artist, published by St. Martin's Press in 2020. Celia, welcome to the show, and thanks so much for joining us. Oh, well, thank you, John. I'm so uh, honored that you've invited me. I wonder if you could start by telling us a bit about yourself, uh, and especially how you first became interested in Frida Kahlo.
0: Well, I, um, I'm i a professor of art history at the University of San Francisco. Um, but, you know, I didn't actually start out as an art history major. Um, I took an art history class because I was interested in the subject. And in that first, well, maybe second, actually, art history class, um, Whitney Chadwick, who was my professor, puts this slide up of this artist who at that time was not that well-known. So we're talking 1980s now. And it was this uh, por- self-portrait of Frida Kahlo, and it was Self-Portrait with Monkey from 1940. And I was just so struck by this painting. I thought, oh my goodness, who is this artist? I have to know more about her. And I was just so fascinated by the image of you know uh, Frida Kahlo in the self-portrait. She looks like a warrior. Um, she has her hair, you know, pulled up tight with this red ribbon, and then this this black spider monkey on her shoulder that's also intertwined with the red ribbon, and then this very intense stare. I mean, her power was just leaping off of the um, well the screen, but I'm sure in person it also leaps off the canvas. And, and so I ended up writing my first art history paper on her. And at that time, I was like, you know, again, I'm not an art history major, but I just got immersed in uh, the world of Frida Kahlo. And then, um, you know, her popularity started to grow in the 80s and 90s. And now we're at a place, of course, where she's this icon. Um, but I really, you know, again, that was like the first time that I had seen her work, and that I became fascinated with it. And then, I, you know, eventually, if we fast forward after I've gotten my PhD and I start teaching art history, uh, I would teach uh, her in a a class uh, on artists crossing cultural boundaries. And and so, you know, I was I was thinking about her a lot in that context. And and then that led me ultimately. To giving a paper at a conference about women artists working between the two world wars, and I thought, oh, Frida Kahlo is perfect because she's working between the two uh, world wars in the early '30s, but she's in the United States, uh, and I thought, oh, there are just so many fascinating, you know, aspects to that and, and issues, and so um, that's that's when the idea of the the book came to me.
1: That's so fascinating. And that it speaks a little bit to a, another question I wanted to ask, which was how you position this this book alongside other biographies of Frida, um, especially Hayden Herrera's Frida, which was first published in 1983. What would you say, uh, what contributions does, does your book make to our understanding of Frida's life and work?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, when I, if we go back to that, that art history classroom where I saw this painting of Frida Kahlo and I was so fascinated. I'm writing my first art history paper. At that time, one of the major books on her in the United States was Hayden Herrera's biography of her. And that biography came out in 1983. And so, you know, this is a significant detail because that means there's roughly, I think, something like, what, 37 years between our books. Um, And So as you can imagine, a lot of scholarship, um, new photos of Frida Kahlo and her family, um, even uh, some new art has emerged in those ensuing years. And so there are many differences between our two biographies. Um, And I'll talk about some of those in a minute. But I I first want to also just say that I am indebted to Herrera's book, uh, as well as all the other books and articles I've read over the years. And I, I actually kind of imagine books in conversation with other books um, that came before and then books to to follow. And so on one level, I see my book in conversation with Herrera's and many others. And I hope my book will you know, inspire others to engage with some of the same issues, ideas, um, interpretations of Kahlo's art that I explore in my book. But to get a little more specific, um, Herrera's book... First off, is the only um, sort of major full life biography. Okay, that is uh, somebody who's really covered her whole life in in detail. So, uh, there ha- surprisingly there have not been uh, any other major biographies since Hayden Herrera's. My biography really zeroes in on a specific period of Kahlo's life while she's in the United States in the early '30s, and Despite you know a lot of new information coming to light since 1983 and the different focus of my book, I do also see in a sense my book as a, a companion to Herrera's. In that, I think you could certainly read both and come away with a very full picture of Frida Kahlo, the person and artist. So, if readers you know discover that there are different interpretations within our books about, about both Kahlo as a person and artist then I I think that's okay. You know, I don't, I don't think they have to match up (laughs) completely because Kala was a complicated person and she was a complicated artist. And so uh, I think it's important to be able to see these different sides and interpretations. Um, And then to get a little more specific, I would say one thing in terms of style, my, my um, book is a bit different. I, was really looking to creative nonfiction for inspiration in terms of the writing style. And so I wanted to take my knowledge and skills as an art historian and combine them with a style of writing that could bring Frida's personal and creative journey alive. You know, I really wanted readers to feel as if they were on this journey with Frida and at the end of the book to feel as if they really understood her and her art on a much deeper level. So the information is factual. It's coming out of years of research, but the style of writing is coming out of creative nonfiction, which uses some of the tools, you know, of fiction writers, for example, uh, wanting to create uh, scenes in your in your biography. So in terms of content, um, again, due to the new scholarship that's emerged since 1983, as well as a lot of new primary documents that I utilized that uh, nobody else has utilized, I was able to take this deep dive into these three pivotal years spent in the US between 1930 and 33. And so my biography also really gives equal weight to her art and life. You know, some some biographers tend to focus more on the life and not as much on the art. I really wanted to give um, equal weight and so um, there really hasn't been any other book that's explored in depth these years uh, prior to, to my book. And so a lot of different things then come out of the book and contribute to, to our uh, understanding of, of Kahlo. One is there are lots of paintings that I talk about in, in depth again that um, others haven't really discussed, uh, like Portrait of Ava Frederick or Portrait of Mrs. Jean White. Um, etc. And then my interpretations of the paintings offer new perspectives and um, you know I, I really again go into a lot of details about this this journey that, that Frida Kahlo was on. And then I, I really the way I set up the book is that pretty much each chapter, with the exception of maybe one, is focused around one particular major work of Frida Kahlo that she creates. So that I wanted to really provide a context for these these paintings, which nobody else has done to this degree, right? And, and in terms of all of this work from this this period of her of her um of her of her life in the early 30s. Um, and then I think the other thing is that uh you know there's a lot of information in my book, that's new, like Frida Kahlo's relationship with women artists and the impact of that on her, as a as a, a growing budding artist. Um, and there's also a lot of information, uh, new information about her relationship with her mother, for example. Um, you know, prior because I, I should point out that. So I based my book on many sources, but sort of the two main ones that that uh, are. New, are hundreds of letters that that Frida Kahlo wrote home to her family, and then also a um, a journal that her her friend Lucienne Block, fellow artist, kept during this period. And so, having access to these two sources was was uh, a game changer. I could not have gotten into such detail right without these sources. And so, one of the things that comes there are lots of things that come through in the letters that others uh, prior. Um, had you know had given us different, uh, pers- a different perspective on Kahlo and her art. And so one of them is her relationship with her mother, right? It was previously thought, well, you know, she wasn't that close to her mother. There was a lot of tension in this relationship. And she was really just very close to her father. But as I'm reading through all of these letters that she's written, writing home, primarily to her mother, more than to her father, there's, there's a great love there. Uh, you know, Frida Kahlo is very concerned about her mother's mental well-being, her physical well-being, her emotional well-being. Um, and it really, you know, comes through that, that there's something much, they have a much closer bond than, than previously understood. So that's just one, you know, example. And there are many, many more where I think that uh, my book ultimately gives us a much more nuanced perspective. Of Kahlo's relationships, not only with her mother, but even also with her father, her siblings to a degree, and and also I think even with uh, her husband Diego Rivera.
1: Yeah, I was I was struck reading the book um, by how how. Uh, rich and detailed, her her letters were home, um, and I was wondering about how, um, you know, Frida. You mentioned Frida as this uh, cross-cultural figure, um, you know, traveling throughout through the united states um and writing home to her mother Um, you were also writing this book uh during a very particular moment in uh contemporary american history um the years roughly from 2008 to 2018 say um and i'm wondering how the shifting political landscape in the united states particularly the changing relationship with mexico um how how that landscape might have affected how you were thinking about Frida's relationship with the United States and her connection also with, with Mexico and her family?
0: Yeah, I know. It's a great question. (laughs) So, you know, when I started the thinking about this book, it was in 2008. And at that time, what I was thinking was, wow, I see these, you know, I see this relationship between the financial crisis that was happening in 2008, um, connected to the you know the the financial crisis the the economic depression of the early 30s and i at first i thought oh wow my book should be very relevant you know to the to the times on the other hand um i started thinking like well maybe though people won't want to read about you know these depressing times if they're feeling pinched you know in terms of the you know uh, economy but you know since it did take me quite a while to to do the research Um, yeah, I wasn't, I wrote my introduction to the book in 2019. So that I did at the very end. And, and so yeah, a lot had happened between 2008 and and 2019. And of course, um, there was a, a really drastic shift with the 2016 presidential election. And I have to say that while I, so so after the shift in 2016, I mean, I was still doing some research. I was still writing chapters. And, um, at that point I have to say I was profound, profoundly disturbed by the similarities in, for example, racist rhetoric concerning people of Mexican descent. Um, and, and seeing these, these similarities and, and thinking about, you know, um, in the 30s there's the repatriation movement you know where the federal government local governments and and just um you know sit, you know american uh citizens are calling for mexicans to to leave the country because they're saying you know they're taking jobs away from essentially white Amer- americans um, and so they're they're forced to leave on trains, you know, just forced to go and, and rounded up. I mean, there it's it's really a lot of terrorism that occurred. And the, um, you know, uh, m- many of them, actually, the majority um, uh, were um, American citizens. So, I mean, there was a large number anyway, maybe majority is not quite right, but it was a pretty large percentage were actually uh, uh, citizens of the United States. And so anyway, th- yes, thinking about the the horrendous uh, conditions for uh, people of Mexican descent in this country in the thirties. And then, you know, hearing this rhetoric um, in, you know, 20, um, you know, seven, 16 through 2019 and, and seeing the rise in hate crimes uh, was incredibly disturbing. Likewise, you know, I'm, I'm doing research on, you um, you know, uh, the rise of of lynchings in this country in the 30s. Um, And then I'm, you know, also witnessing the um, the violence toward Black people in this country rising, Um, the violence towards, you know, um, Jewish people, synagogues, uh, violence rising with the AAPI community, with the LGBTQIA plus community. I mean, it was just, honestly, it was at times more than I could really bear I would have to stop researching because it was it was so uh, incredibly painful. Um, I didn't have, you know, I think in the prior to that, when I if I'd been researching these these really horrific um, times in U.S. history, I had the cushion of, well, thank goodness it's changed, right? Thank goodness um, this isn't happening any longer in this country, and and I didn't have that. And, and so, yeah, it was, it was incredibly difficult. And like I said, I had to, I had to stop at times. But um, to answer that question, I, I, it really didn't impact, I don't think, unless it happened on an unconscious level, how I wrote about the period, this period for Frida Kahlo. Because what I really did was I took my cues from, from her. So I looked at what she wrote about. What images she created. Um, and I and then what I tried to do was find out more information about it. So I would, you know, do all this research. And then I'm, you know, it's kind of like taking pieces from a puzzle, you know, and trying to put it together to create something um, th- that you know, readers could follow. and And so I was really looking to her and then and then doing the research based on what she was saying. Uh, and And so um, I think in the end, you know, when I was writing that introduction and sort of sitting with the fullness of, of yeah, the the experiences uh, that I've been witnessing currently, um, it was like, wow, this is, you know, this is really disturbing. And my only hope is that people reading my book will not only come to appreciate even more about Frida Kahlo, but also... Seeing this country through a Mexican woman's uh, eyes and an artist's eyes in the 1930s maybe could help open up people's eyes to the horrors of our history and to maybe see what's happening today, you know, as not new but connected back to this history. And maybe, you know, on some level, right, if we understand this history on a deeper level, we can move forward, you know, to a sense of greater equality for for all
1: yeah that's so fascinating um one of the things that comes through so clearly in your book is how deeply political so much of of Frida's art is um, commenting on on uh, her surroundings and her experiences as a Mexican woman in the United States in the 1930s I wonder if you do you think that Frida's um, politics and also the the similarities between the 1930s and the present, do you think that at all has anything to do with um, Frida's contemporary popularity? Oh, yes.
0: <laughs> I mean, I think that, she, you know, it's a cliche to say, but she was ahead of her time in so many ways. Um, one of the things that really you know, hadn't been explored as much in the literature on Frida Kahlo though for years was how political she was, you know, that, that side had kind of been, uh, underground more because people tended to focus on her personal pain from either her relationship with Diego Rivera or her physical, um, pain due to, you know, chronic pain due to both having polio as a child. And then this, you know, uh, near-death bus trolley accident at age 18 so people tended to focus on that more than her um, politics but again part of what really came through for me was how strong that was while she's in the United States and and so yes all of these things that she cares about you know uh, racial justice uh, economic justice um, you know justice for 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 women um, and and also, Uh, Somebody who was who was bisexual and felt very comfortable in her bisexuality and said, you know, quote, homosexuality is good. Um, You know, I think that 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 she yes, she resonates with people today on so many different levels.
1: Yeah, I'm. I'm thinking uh, as you're talking about her, her politics and and her relationships um, with with other women. Um, I'm thinking about the, the 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 community of of women artists uh, that that Frida formed while in the United States. Uh, how important was that community of artists for Frida?
0: I think it was really important, and this isn't an, again something that hadn't been explored in very much detail uh, before my book. And so in San Francisco, that's the first city that she, that Frida comes to. And so in, in uh, November of 1930, she comes to San Francisco and she, um, yeah, she's, she meets other women artists. She is, um, working with, um, uh, a couple of, uh, of women, um, who, well, one, one is Pele Delop and she is, um, uh, actually, a student, an art student at the um, w- what we call today the San Francisco Art Institute. And then there was another uh, female artist who lived downstairs in the flat where Frida was living, um, Lucille Blanche. And, and so they start hanging out at Blanche's studio uh, at night. And they're experimenting with, you know, art. They're, they're having fun. Um, they're, they're laughing. They're, um, they're doing drawings that are in the style of what we call like a, a surrealist, um, uh, they call them exquisite corpses, where you, you pass around, a, you know, a piece of paper and each person will um, add a particular uh, design to it. But you fold it over so you're not supposed to have any idea what the person prior to you uh, drew on the paper. And then at the end, you open it up and you see what kind of, you know, uh, surprises arise. But sometimes they would say, oh, let's, let's all do a drawing of a particular theme. Like one of them was maternity. And then they would, they would each draw one and then they would show it to each other. And, and, you know, again, oftentimes would kind of have fun with it. And so one of the things that Pele Pelle Delop talked about was how Frida said in English one night, Let's draw the bloodiest thing we can think of. And, and that really spoke to me because I realized that that was something that she then ended up incorporating into her art. Uh, first in San Francisco and then over and over again um, as she matured as an, as an artist. And so one of the paintings she ends up creating in San Francisco is a portrait of Luther Burbank this uh, horticulturist who uh, and botanist who was uh, known for his hybrid fruits and vegetables you know etc and who she seemed to really um you know admire and so she shows him as a hybrid tree man and underneath the the tree is his skeleton and there's there's blood still like coursing through the skeleton um and so so that I think those nights experimenting with these two women, I think was very liberating for for Frida Kahlo. And then, you know, when she's in New York in 1931, she meets Georgia O'Keeffe, and Georgia O'Keeffe at that time was probably the most well, I should say, one of the most, um, if not the most successful women artists. You know, she she had had quite a, a you know a successful Career selling works of art at high prices, and of course, her husband Alfred Stieglitz, who was not only a photographer but an art dealer, uh, was was very uh, influential in promoting her art. And so, you know, Frida Kahlo's encountering uh, Georgia O'Keeffe, she's seen how this successful woman artist is uh, selling her work, but she also is seeing the difficulties of uh, O'Keeffe's relationship with her husband and, and, you know, how O'Keeffe's trying to navigate that, which is, which, which essentially what's happening is O'Keefe is having an, uh, a nervous breakdown uh, at the time that Kahlo is with her and, and Kahlo is attracted to O'Keeffe. Um, it, it appears that they had an affair. Um, but then also what I think is very uh, poignant, very sad, very sort of telling is that, I talk about in my epilogue that in the late 30s, Frida Kahlo will also have a nervous breakdown due to her husband having an affair with Frida Kahlo's sister. And so it's kind of repeating in some ways what she'd already witnessed you know, with George O'Keeffe in 1931 and 32. Um, and both women um, end up not being able to create for very long periods of time. Uh, they you know, it was, again, it was such a traumatic experience for them uh, that they couldn't create. So I think that was an important uh, for her. And then uh, another artist is Lucien Bloch, who was a photographer, um, a sculptor, uh, and becomes actually a muralist after working with Diego Rivera as a mural assistant. She will go on to become a muralist in her own right. Uh, but but this friendship really develops. In New York in 31 as well, and then in Detroit, and then back to New York in 1933. And so I was able to, you know, use Lucien Bloch's journal, for example, to really help me understand some of the details of what was going on in Frida Kahlo's life. Um, so I'm using the letters and I'm using this journal. Uh, to to really again give me those details and and so one of the things you see with Block is that she really loves what Frida Kahlo is creating and and you know tells her like yeah this is really good stuff you know you're on to something um, and so I think that that you know all of that encouragement and that experimentation um, and seeing you know again the the pluses and the minuses of being involved with a uh, successful and powerful man. Uh, have an impact on on Frida Kahlo in, in important ways.
1: Yeah, that anecdote about um, Frida um, and 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 some of her friends drawing, um, as you said, the, the bloodiest thing we can think of mm-hmm. is is so powerful in the book, um, and it's it's a story that that sort of recurs uh, mm-hmm. throughout Frida's experience. Uh, what was Frida's relationship with with blood and violence and and death?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, she herself actually addressed this in the late 30s, um, I believe it was, when she was asked about it from a reporter because she created this painting called A Few Small Nips, which I mentioned in the uh, epilogue uh, because I think that this is kind of the the uh, outcome of her saying you know, in, in 1931, let's draw the bloodiest thing we can think of. Well, by the late 30s, she's done that with this painting, A Few Small Nips, created while well, she's in, in Mexico. But it was based on a true story of a man who um, who kills his girlfriend uh, with you know by stabbing her uh, over and over again. And in, in court, he says something like, well, I only gave her a few small nips. And in this this painting that Frida Kahlo creates is so incredibly disturbing and powerful. Um, but it shows this woman, you know, being uh, who's been stabbed many, many times, and all the blood, and even the blood goes out onto the um, the frame of the painting. And then at one point, we have photographs of this painting in Frida Kahlo's studio. And at one point, you even see a knife stuck into the the frame of the painting. So Frida's asked about this painting, and and she herself said, "I like to paint blood," you know. She says, "I don't know why." Then she says, "Maybe I should be psychoanalyzed," but she reflects upon it a bit, and then she says, "The desire to paint blood may come from the year of suffering I spent in bed after a streetcar crashed a bus I was on." Um, you know, <laughs> this is when she's eighteen. So she herself is. Is saying it it may go back to this period when she's in this you know horrible accident and really was left for dead and and so one of the things that her boyfriend at the time, um, Alejandro says is that because he was with her and he he comes upon her body and she's covered in blood and all of her clothes had been somehow stripped off of her in the in the accident and so she's just covered in blood. But at the same time, he said there was all this um, gold on her body too, because apparently there was a uh, some kind of a painter on the bus who had who had gold, you know, uh, flecks, and and they had dispersed, and, and during the accident, so she's covered in blood with all of this gold. So it's kind of this, you know, combination of a horrific image, but mixed with some you might say beauty. Um, and, and so, yeah, that definitely seems to have had a major impact. I mean, you know, obviously had a major impact on her in many ways, but she herself is saying that might be the source of it. I think also though, you know, if growing up in a Catholic culture, certainly there's emphasis on blood in terms of Christ and seeing some of the images, uh, you know, going to, to church uh, every you know, uh, every week, sometimes multiple times a week with her family. And then also as Frida is coming into her own in the 1920s and then on into the 30s, there's a real emphasis on, you know, after the, after the revolution in uncovering the uh, indigenous cultures prior to, um, you know, the uh, conquistadors coming in and, and demolishing, you know, especially uh, Aztec culture at that time. And so there's, there's a lot of emphasis on blood within Aztec culture as well. So I think you can see different, you know, uh, layers here.
2: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
1: Yeah, that's so fascinating. Thinking about how how Frida may have been, you know, sort of reclaiming or or just even appreciating certain parts of of Aztec culture. Um, I wanted to ask too about. Um, the the three major cities uh, you've already mentioned them in passing: San Francisco, New York, and Detroit. Uh, the three major cities where where Frida uh, spent time while she was in the United States. Uh, what what do you think she got from these cities, um, and and how might their their differences have informed her understanding of the country?
0: Well, I think San Francisco again was the first city that she came to. She had actually been. Dreaming about San Francisco for years, and and when she and Diego arrive, she had drawn a, um, actually a, a a picture of it before they arrived on on the train. and And Diego says when he he saw the city for the first time, he was kind of amazed that it matched what Frida had drawn, and and um, that you know she she seemed to have this kind of feeling about San Francisco. She called it the city of the world. Um. And so when they were here, it's, it's like the beginning of the Depression era, 1930. Uh, and so things weren't great, but they weren't quite as, uh, as bad as they, as they will become when she's in Detroit and, and New York. Um, and so I think that when she's in San Francisco, she, she socializes a lot. She, um, she, she's working a lot on her art. She has an interest, uh, Albert Bender who was one of the uh, you know really important uh, art patrons of the Bay Area? He uh, took a real liking to Frida. She created a painting of her and Diego and gave it to Albert Bender, which now is in the uh, San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. and And so I think one of the things you see there is uh, her making a very savvy move to give him this painting, knowing that he would probably donate it to um, the museum eventually, but also um, that he would loan it to exhibitions of Mexican art, which he did before, um, you know, giving it to the San Francisco Museum of Art, which becomes SF MoMA. And, and so, you, you know, you see that, I think, influence with her art. Again, the women artists I already mentioned influencing her um, she she meets Dr. Ella Wesser, who becomes a lifelong friend and somebody who she really uh, identifies with. He's also a good friend of, of Diego's and he becomes a match, kind of like a matchmaker uh, in that when they divorce in 1939, um, he, Diego ends back up in San Francisco in 1940 and he has Frida come back to San Francisco where they remarry So that's what I mean by kind of like a matchmaker, but he also was, you know, always kind of the one trying to help them smooth out, you know, problems in their relationship. So she, you know, so she meets important people in San Francisco. Her art, I think really starts to take off in San Francisco. Um, But then when she um, goes to, to New York in 1931, then she's really starting to see more and more um, bread lines, um, she's they're they're interacting with the the rockefellers right they're going to parties with the rockefellers she's seen the the huge disparities between the wealth of the rockefellers and and those you know who are in that category who are who are um uh, buying art uh and and you know the, the the food you know the the um the luxuries that they can afford the places where they're living and then You know, leaving and being on the street and seeing people in lines, you know, waiting just to have some bread, some, you know, maybe a little bit of soup. Um, And so that has a huge impact on her. She just cannot understand how can a country like the United States that's so wealthy, that proclaims to be about um, democracy, how can this happen here? And then, you know, that will continue to unfold um, when she comes back to New York in 1933. When, as I really chart in my last chapter, so much is happening in this period, where there are protests happening right and left around racial injustice, around the disparities in terms of uh, e- uh, economic disparities, and, and workers who are who are protesting, um, and. She gets caught up in all of that. And one of her paintings, My Dress Hangs There, uh, takes up takes that up and you see actual protesters that she has incorporated into her painting. So it's a painting, but there are these collaged elements in it. And then um, in Detroit, also Detroit was one of the hardest hit cities in the United States during the Depression. And one of the things that she had called Detroit was... Uh, she she really disparaged it she hated she said she really hated it there and she called it a shabby old village and i couldn't quite understand that comment for the longest time until i was doing more research about what detroit was going through in that period and it's because and then i also i found something else that frida had said more specifically which was that she was seeing trash everywhere homes that were dilapidated and so what she saw you know, in Detroit, even probably more so than in San Francisco or New York, was a city that was in in crisis even more. Again, with housing that was dilapidated, people living on the streets. She saw people living on the streets in New York. She saw them living on the streets in Detroit, and that has a huge impact on her. And then um, also, in while she's in Detroit, though she goes through some uh, trauma with uh, a miscarriage. That um, also was, you know, just it's described as so severe that she could have died, or at least she feared that she could have died, and and so I would say that her own personal trauma, that and also her mother's um, ill health, they kind of almost come together or collide with the trauma that uh, people are going through in the United States. And those two elements together create a, almost a kind of combustible energy that unleashes something in Frida Kahlo in Detroit in 1932, whereby her art really changes, becomes much more personal. And but it's like the personal is political, as uh, feminists you know took up in the 70s is something that I think that Frida Kahlo was doing already in the 30s. And then um, also just personally, she's I think she is coming into her own even more because she'd al- always had this aspect of the provocateur within her. But I think that she becomes more comfortable showing that, at least in the United States, she becomes more comfortable uh, showing that. And she, and she does in lots of ways. And so that's one way that she um, is able to kind of push back against some of the um, inequities that she experiences, the anti-Semitism, the um, again, the racist
1: um uh,
0: you know attitudes and and violence
1: yeah i was i was so i was so interested to read um about that that side of her uh you know what you call the provocateur um i was wondering if if you wanted to talk about the the dinner she had with the ford the ford family yeah. while she was yeah. in detroit
0: yeah that's a, i know it, it's a, it's a good story because it really gives us a sense of how frida kahlo was you know she had this really brilliant mind and she was very quick, and she used uh, wit, she used sarcasm, she used punning in very effective ways. And so yeah, she when she's in Detroit and now they're they're socializing with the Fords because um, both Henry Ford and Etzel Ford, his son, uh, really are the ones who provided the funding for Diego Rivera's murals at the um, at the Art Institute in. Um, at the Detroit Art Institute, and so they go to this this dinner, and and I should before I tell you what happened, I should say that Henry Ford uh, was known as a uh, an anti semite. I mean, this is something that I don't think he he didn't hide it. Right, he he uh, promoted it, and it was known that he would often at these dinners bring up the quote unquote Jewish uh, question, and and Frida Kahlo identified as part Jewish, um, because um, it's she believed that her father was part Jewish. And, and so um, she was very much, you know, uh, again, appalled by anti-Semitism that she witnessed in the U.S. So they're at this dinner party, and um, there's a lull in the conversation. And Frida turns to Henry Ford, and she says, Mr. Ford, are you Jewish? And uh, according to Lucianne Bloch, you know, there's just this kind of stunned silence. And, you know, people don't know what to do with this, right? Like, is she serious? Is she really that naive? But it was really this perfect way, I think, for Frida to say, I'm on to you. And I don't approve of your anti-Semitism. But at the same time, she had to be careful, right? Because her husband is getting paid by this man. And, and so I don't think he Henry Ford knew exactly right was she serious or was she not, and you know there are there are indications that he really liked Frida, right that he actually thought she was quite interesting and charming. So, um, but anyway, yeah, that's just like one example of how she could use her um, her wit to really um, you know show how she did not approve of something like you know anti-Semitism.
1: It's such a such a great story. Um, I'm 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 wondering if you see a, this sense of um, playfulness in in her art. Uh, you, you've talked already about the the some of the the political aspect of her art. Um, do you see her art also as as playful in in maybe in ways that are also political, like this story with with Henry Ford?
0: Mm-hmm yeah I think that there's there's always a lot that's going on in Frida Kahlo's art. Uh, and one of the things I talk about in the book is I think, you know, on the one hand, her I think her art is very uh, available to people so that you can you can see her paintings and you can just, you know, uh, have a f- kind of physical, emotional reaction to them and and really, you know, um, find them powerful. And you don't have to necessarily you know, take them apart and really analyze them to, I think, appreciate them and and find them powerful. However, for those like me, who, who also are fascinated by these layers in her work, I think she, yeah, I think she uses a lot of symbolism. Um, I think she chooses her, her imagery carefully. And I think there is often more going on than meets the eye and yeah, she can be, I think she can be very playful. Um, I mean, just, okay, just to take that painting I mentioned a a minute ago, a few small nips, okay? Now, we wouldn't think she's being playful at all with that painting. Uh, However, you know, by calling the painting, you know, a few small nips, she is referencing what this man said about his girlfriend, who he brutally murders, saying, well, I just gave her a few small nips. And so she takes that on so that, there are these different levels there, right? I I think one level is like the horror of it. And on another level, it's kind of like the absurdity of it. You know, and you could kind of laugh thinking like, what? Like, how could somebody say that? You know, but so those two levels are at play at once, right? The horror of it and this kind of um, sarcastic absurdity of it. Uh, And, you know, she also, you know, created a painting um, of her... um, in a, in a suit (laughs) where she's wearing a man's suit, self portrait with cropped hair. And she's got, you know, hair all around her where her, her hair has been cut off. And now she looks more like um, a man with really short hair and this man's suit that she's wearing. And on the, on the one hand, you know, you think, wow, this is really, she's so powerful. Um, But also like what's just happened here that she's, she's cut off all her hair and it's lying around her kind of like a, like she's killed something, she's killed her hair, you know, it's this powerful act. But then she puts this, she puts lyrics at the top of a a well-known song. And, you know, it says something to the effect of like, you know, um, if I loved you, it was for your hair. (laughs) You know, and again, (laughs) there's this, you know, there's this like, Tension there between, like, you just, you know, you laugh, like, okay, this is absurd. Like, you know, I'm, I'm gonna, if I really loved you, it's because of your hair. Uh, how superficial can you get? But on the other hand, you know, in the, when it, how it resonates with the painting is a whole other level because this person sitting in front of you wearing a man's suit with their legs, legs parted in a way that is a uh, accorded male privilege, holding scissors, and, and then. And I think she's holding the scissors at groin level. Um, and then with all of this hair around her that she's chopped off, it takes on to get another you know, layer here. And there's something about how men view women. Uh, what you know, Are they only interested in women's beauty? Um, the power of, of Frida Kahlo sitting there as this androgynous person saying, yeah, you, you're going to only love me for my hair? Well, watch what I do. I'm going to cut it all off. You know, so there's there's a lot that's going on there, and I think yes, yeah, she does often use this kind of humor, wit, with her work.
1: Yeah, it's so fascinating, uh, and really speaks to that the the multiple dimensions of of her art that you've you've mm-hmm. been talking about. Um, yeah. I wanted to ask a one one final question um, at the at the very end of the book, you write that Frida. You say she left Gringolandia a different person than when she'd arrived and she'd created her best art. She may have had her gripes with the United States, but it was the place where her creative spirit broke through to new heights. What was it about her time in the United States that allowed Frida to flourish?
0: Well, I think it's some of the things that I've already touched upon. But, um, you know, again, like overall, I think part of what's happening is that she comes to the United States as a budding artist, as a, a relatively, you know, newly married woman to this, this artist, Diego Rivera, who is, uh, you know, world famous um, and he, I mean, he's becoming more and more famous in the U.S. because he's, he's getting these major mural commissions. He's having a, um, a, a major retrospective at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. So I would say his 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 fame was growing certainly here, and and she is you know in the beginning she's really kind of his um, in his shadow in many ways as an artist as a person um, she's still I think trying to figure out uh, her her role as an artist married to an artist her role as the wife of an artist and um, and so while she's here. She, you know, well, I, let me back up a second. I think, so I think when she comes here, okay, she's, she's been working on her art. She's made some important, you know, strides in her art, but she's really still at the beginning, right. Of this artistic uh, journey. And um, I, but I think when she came to the U S she was equipped with everything she needed to create this breakthrough. All right. But because she's in a different country, um, and in again in the, in a country that's going through all this turmoil that I've mentioned previously, and she's you know she's both being in, insp- well and I should also say not only is it the turmoil but there are things that she loved here too. She saw some great art, for example, at the Metropolitan Museum in New York. She loved the bay, you know, the San Francisco Bay when she was here. So there's there are things that are also inspiring her on a positive level. So all of these things that are coming together with. What's happening in the U.S. Uh, that's, you know, she's outraged by, saddened by um, the things that are positive, that are inspiring her. And then, as I said earlier, her own sort of personal uh, traumas, her also, you know, the challenges of her relationship with Rivera as they're moving through the U.S. Uh, I think, you know, all of these things become much more intensified because she's in a different country and experiencing it than you know, through her eyes as a, you know, a Mexican woman, a Mexican artist who feels passionately about the communist ideals of equality. You know, she's, she sees, you know, it's important for workers' rights um, to see equality for, for all. Uh, and, and so I think all of these different factors just really came together, as I said earlier, to create a kind of combustible energy that uh, allowed her, her to then create works like Henry Ford Hospital and My Birth that uh, really hadn't been you know created in, in Western art um, previously at least you know since let's say maybe the, the Renaissance <laughs> um, and they're they're really amazing works of art in terms of putting uh, women's personal experiences out there like a miscarriage for example uh, giving birth. Uh, you know, th- these are subjects that re- really were not highlighted in, in art at that time. So she's quite a, a trailblazer. And I think it's just all of these different factors uh, happening while she's in the US, a place she, you know, really has problems with, despises in many ways, but also has found, as I said earlier, some, you know, inspiration as well.
1: Celia, we've already taken up a lot of your time, um, but I do want to thank you so much uh, for joining the New Books in Biography channel. I've really enjoyed hearing about your book, Frida in America, um, and also learning more about about Frida Kahlo today.
0: Well, thank you, John. I've really enjoyed talking to you today, and and you asked me uh, great questions,
1: so thank you. Thank you, and take care.